I'm uh, Stu Kearns. I'm the, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you today. We are nearing the end of our study through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, next week we're going to finish that, and then we're going to begin uh, uh, shortly after that uh, a study of Jesus' I Am sayings from the Gospel of John. And so there are seven of those, seven weeks, and that'll take us all the way up to Easter. Today we're going to look at the Creed's brief but powerful statements about the church. And for our key text today, we're going to look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, this is the Word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, whereby, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Amen. Heavenly Father, we take up this, your word. We pray you speak to our hearts. Help us to hear your voice and to respond in faith. Amen. Please be seated. Many are unaware that in something called the First Great Awakening in the uh, 1700s, that one of the things emphasized in that great American awakening uh, was the unity of all true believers. Uh, The great preacher and evangelist of that first great awakening, George Whitfield, put it this way in a sermon. He he had a a lot of styles he used in his sermons, and one of those was to pretend to have a conversation and kind of taking on a character. So he pretends in this part of the sermon to be talking to Abraham, and this is how he emphasized this unity. He says, Father Abraham, whom have you in heaven? Any Episcopalians? No. Any Presbyterians? No. Any independents or seceders, new sides, old sides, any Methodists? No, no, no. Whom have you there then, Father Abraham? We don't know those names here. All who are here are Christians, believers in Christ, men who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. Oh, is that the case? then God help me. God help us all to forget having names and to become Christians. If that was true back in the 1700s, 
How much more true is it today? How would that kind of message be received today? The creed challenges us to consider the nature of the church, the nature of a holy Catholic communion of saints. That's what we want to look at this morning in those three parts. Let's start with the very first one, a holy church. We confess a holy church. What do we mean by holy? Uh, We're told in the creed again, the church is holy. And uh, by the way, we'll complete this idea a bit more next week when we talk about the forgiveness of sins. But we are holy in a couple of different ways. We are holy in the sense that we are set apart by God. And that's a part of what that word means in the scriptures, to be consecrated, to set apart to God in a particular way. But we are also holy in the sense that we are forgiven. We are holy in Christ. And so in our baptism, we are set apart from the world, reminded that we belong to Christ, that we bear his mark. And by faith in Christ, we are forgiven and we receive his holiness as our own. And so the church can rightly be called holy. We are a holy church. And we see this language used in the New Testament. In fact, if you do a word study on on holy just in the New Testament, Well, the first thing you're going to see is it's almost always used about the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit's presence, the Holy Spirit's presence tag talked about, uh, was it last week? That's right. Uh, There are, uh, that is the dominant usage of the word holy in in the New Testament. It isn't even close. And then after that, we see it used in a couple of different ways. But sometimes it's also used, it's used quite a bit about Jesus, the Holy One. And finally, we get to some references of, uh, to the church or to the people who make up Christ's church. 1 Corinthians 3.17, God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You're holy. Colossians 1.22, he that is Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy. That's what the cross does. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved, that's how he describes you. You are holy and beloved. First, uh, Hebrews 3, uh, uh, the author calls us all holy brothers. Peter, in his writings, calls us a holy priesthood, a holy nation. This is holiness for you, both in identity, in Christ, and in aspiration. But in Christ, the identity, we are forgiven. And the scripture says we are holy. Alistair McGrath says it this way, Christians are holy not because of anything they are in themselves, but because of the one who has called them. The fact that we are holy has nothing to do with our personal merit or sanctity of life. It has to do with the work of Christ. Holiness is your new identity in Christ by his merit. But it is also your aspiration in life to reflect more and more God's holiness in your life. And so we're exhorted uh, in the New Testament to pursue holiness. You are holy, you are to become holy. Peter exhorts us in his first letter, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Many have described the Christian life as becoming what you are. And that's, that's a very, very accurate statement. The Christian life is becoming more and more what you already are, what you are in Christ. 
a holy church, we confess. The second thing, we confess a Catholic church. And uh, the first obvious question is, what do we mean by Catholic? And again, most of you may already know, but the word Catholic just means universal. It just means the whole church. Every, uh, and this is uh, some, by the way, have changed the creed to just say there's one universal church or, or use some other word that expresses that. Again, I made it, uh, explained a couple of weeks ago why we still say Catholic, because it's a good word. And, it, uh, and so sometimes we distinguish between Catholic, and you'll hear me say Roman Catholic, if I mean the Roman Catholic Church. If we just use the word Catholic, we're just saying universal, and we can use that in a variety of ways. Um, Paul, excuse me, Packer, when he describes this Catholicity of the church, he says it's just describing all Christians everywhere, universal and it may be helpful in our circumstances, again, to distinguish. If we mean Roman Catholic, say Roman Catholic. Uh, notice something else about this. The, the creed doesn't talk about churches. It talks there is one holy Catholic church, one. One church. And so this idea of Catholicity reminds us that the church is not many, but the church is one. Notice how Paul uses the singular in today's passage. He speaks of a household, a foundation, a structure, a temple, a dwelling place, singular. There aren't many churches. There's only one church. And in fact, the biggest division that, ex that uh, God's people experienced, uh, again, before Christ, the idea of Jew and Gentile, is now, Paul says, that's been erased. That's no longer uh, the, the reality. Since Abraham began his family, the world has been divided by those who belong to Abraham and those who do not. Jew and Gentile. Jew and everybody else. But in the church, God has broken down that final division. Listen again. Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and everybody else, has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And later, verse 15, God created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So Catholic means universal. The Catholic Church then is that universal church that is made up of all true churches and all true believers. And the churches then that bear the marks of a true Christian church. Uh, this is another topic that's worthy of a whole other sermon series, but what are those marks of the church? What does a true Christian church look like? And uh, if we go no further than the book of Acts, Acts chapter four, uh, 2, verse 42, it gives some of those descriptions of, of what the church looks like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay, that's a, a good start, right? If you have a Christian church, you'd expect there to be the apostles' teaching, true teaching of the scripture. You'd expect there to be this fellowship. Another word for that is communion together that we share the breaking of bread, again, which is code in the New Testament just for the Lord's table. You'd expect to see that. You'd expect to see prayers. Now, about 500 years ago, the church kind of went through this again, asking this question, what, uh, okay, what are the essentials of the church? If we had to really describe what are the essentials of, of any Christian church, uh, some made longer lists, some made even a shorter list. 
And so uh, when we think about the marks of the church, oftentimes in our circles, we talk about the, the preaching of the word, the, the true preaching of the gospel. Uh, we talk about sacraments, two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we talk about discipline, that, uh, that we shepherd one another and discipline one another according to the word of God. But if you read the New Testament, you'll see that that really is kind of a bare minimum. We see the church function in a lot of different ways, like we see in Acts chapter 2. We see marks of fellowship and prayer and concern for each other's needs and meeting together and worship and conversions. This is a part of the experience of the church, right? And so these are the kind of things that identify us. And this is our work. This is our business in the world right now, all these things. And let's not be content just to hit two or three of the key marks of the church. That's not enough. Uh, it's baseball season, so I'm thinking about baseball and I'm thinking about pitchers. And you know, if, if you had a pitcher who had a great fastball, how far would that, would that pitcher make it into the big leagues? Well, the answer is not necessarily. You could have a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, but if you don't have some off pitches... <laughs> You'll never make it in the big leagues. Our, my friend Ted Powers actually was a, some of you know him from church planting. He actually played college baseball. Uh, went down to Arizona to play in a Division I school. And he'll never forget the first uh, experience he had down there. He was a hot pitcher. He could throw a hot fastball. No one was going to catch up to his fastball. But he didn't have many off pitches. And uh, so he got up and he was going to show him what he had. First pitch, knocked it out of the park. Second pitch, Next guy knocked it out of the park. Three, three times in a row, they took him yard because he didn't have an off pitch. Okay, what's the point? Well, I mean, a lot of times in the church we say, yeah, we're a teaching church, and so that's our, that's our fastball, and we can teach like crazy, and that's what we're going to do, and that's great. That's wonderful. What are your off pitches? Can you do other things that churches are supposed to do? Are we content just to have a couple of marks of the church? Or do we want to look like the church in the New Testament? Do we want a, tr a church that, yes, preaches and teaches the gospel of Christ, the apostles' teaching, that, yes, practices the sacraments, that, yes, that has shepherding and discipline in the life of the church? But are we a church that also is marked by fellowship, a church that is marked by prayer, a church uh, that is marked by concern for uh, one another's needs and the needs of this community, a church... <laughs> A church that not only worships together, but shares Christ in an effective way in this community so that other people are coming into the fellowship. Is that us? That is the church. We have many churches, and we don't want to be among them that think they can excel in one mark of the church and say, well, we're very effective. Don't compare yourself to other churches but to the biblical model that we have been given. And never be content because we excel in one or two of these marks. It's not good enough. A holy church, a universal church, and the third thing, I would use this word, a united church. A united church. Uh, he, we confess that we're a part of the communion of saints. What is this communion? It's the idea of unity and fellowship that actually really binds us together. And the Bible speaks of us as being bound 
and to uh, relationships that define this communion. Two relationships in particular. The first is our communion and fellowship with Christ. We're described in the Bible as being in Christ. And so when we come to faith, we are, we are united with Christ. Almost 90 times in the New Testament, the believer is described as being in Christ. And so our identity is, is with him, our connection to Jesus himself. We are united to him, identified with him, so much so that by faith we, in Christ, we are clothed with him, just like a garment, and treated by the Father just as he would treat the Son. That's a beautiful, beautiful gospel. When I put my faith in Christ, I am clothed with Christ. And when the Father looks at me, he sees his Son. That will bring peace to your soul. We confess our sins every week and we think about, okay, all the other stuff that God sees. God's not blind. He knows who I am. But in, when I put my faith in Christ... His regard for me, his love for me, is exactly the same as it is for his own son. We're in union with Christ. We are justified. We are declared righteous. We are adopted into God's family, and our fate is sealed with Christ's fate. Now, the second sense, not only are we in communion and with Christ and united with Christ, but our commun- we have also have this communion with, with fellow believers. And this is the emphasis of uh, today's text. We acknowledge our connection with the people of God in all places everywhere. Um, we, you know, you think about uh, uh, banks, and they've got branch banks, and you can go to all these branch banks everywhere, and it's the same bank, right? It's the same Uh, accounts that are being kept in those banks. And every church is to be a branch bank of the one true church. Just a little division, but not our own church, not our own body. We belong to one body. And we are united not only to those around the world and all these branches of God's church, but we are united, uh, well, to the people, the saints who have gone before us. We sang about it this morning. We're united to the saints across all time, across all denominations, all those who belong to Jesus and have put their trust in him. We sang about it this morning, the the mystic sweet communion. Have you ever, I mean, we sing it, and then you kind of think, how much have I really thought about that? The mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. That's what is being talked about here. This We are connected to the rest of God's people, not just those who are around us in this room, but those who are connected to Christ around the globe, and also those who have come before us in the faith and those who will come after us in the faith. We are unified and connected to all of God's people. They are our brothers and sisters. What a beautiful thing. A universal connection. All Christians everywhere in this communion or or fellowship that we have with other believers spans the ages, spans the many branches of Christ's one church. You know, this concept is so beautiful. There are a couple of word pictures that, that I'm drawn to 
And uh, part of the reason I was drawn to today's text is because it, it, it has one of these beautiful word pictures of this communion and unity that we have with all these people around us and before us and after us. Paul describes us as a holy temple. A couple of different places Paul uses this language as a living temple, as does Peter. We're told in this living temple that Jesus is the cornerstone. He gives solidity and form to the temple. The apostles and prophets are the foundation of this. They give us the teaching and the word of God that we need to know and to follow him. And then we're told that God, is, is by his spirit, is building this temple. And all together, all who are in Christ are the living stones, the raw material God is using to build a new kind of temple. And this is what God had in mind all along. The temple and the tabernacle in, uh, in the Old Testament are the images of God's presence among his people. And when the tabernacle was finished, when the temple was fin finished, the glory of God descended upon that place to signify his presence in the center of his people. But what happens now, all these divisions are passed, the gospel is for all nations, and it is going to all nations, and God says, well, that was just a shadow of what I intended to do. And what God has truly intended to do is to build a spiritual temple, and you are the living stones. And all those who have come before you are a part of this one structure, and God is putting it together to his glory to be a dwelling place among his people. Uh, you know, in the in the book of Acts, the second chapter, uh, has that very peculiar thing where these little flaming tongues of fire come upon the heads of the people of God. And I know about you, but for many, many years, I, that's weird. That's just odd. What's that about? But the scripture itself tells us clearly what it's about. When God is building a temple or completing a temple, he shows his presence by the fire and the smoke. He did it with the tabernacle. He did it with the temple. And now the true temple on that day of Pentecost, the flaming presence of God is with the living stones, each of us being built into this one beautiful temple, one building, one foundation, one cornerstone, all of us, all of us connected into one church. What a beautiful picture of what God is doing and the unity that we share, the real unity we share, brothers and sisters all around the globe, all throughout the ages. Mystic, sweet communion. Second word picture I really enjoy, it comes from Hebrews 12. Uh, Hebrews 12 verse 1 describes the Christian life this way. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Uh, like many of us, I used to imagine uh, as I'm running my race, it's kind of like the Lincoln Marathon. You know, you see people and you wave and it's like, hey, they're cheering me on. And, oh, that's great. Uh, people, they're, even they see the name on your bib and they even shout out your name once in a while. And that, that was kind of the word, the idea I had in my mind is that great, great. People are cheering me on. This cloud of witnesses. Uh, I had it backwards. <laughs> I had it backwards. If you look at the text, it's pretty clear. That's, it's not about people cheering on me. It's not about people cheering on you. What is it about? 
It's about as you're running your race, you're looking at the people who've already finished their race, and that inspires you to continue running your race. Notice the language here. Uh, the language in, is uh, in the beginning of Hebrews 11, it says, therefore. What's the therefore? It's connecting you to the last chapter. And what was the last chapter about? It was about the, the heroes of faith, the hall of faith, all the people who lived the life of faith. And so what the author is saying here is that as you're running your race, you're inspired by you looking at those who finished their race and finished well. And as you see their example, it, it, it inspires you to continue to run and to continue to do uh, the work that God has laid before you. Now, you might ask the question, okay, I'm looking at them, those who have finished the race. I'm inspired but in, in my race by looking at what they have finished already. Are they looking at me? You know, the Scripture doesn't say you know, that feeling we like to have that, you know, the dad was looking down on me on that day. I, it's a nice thought. I don't find it anywhere in the Bible. The witnesses, the cloud of witnesses are not there watching you. It's you watching them and saying, if they couldn't finish this race, I will finish the race as well. Seeing the examples of the life of faith by those who have finished their race. Pastor Scott Lindsay said it this way, the encouragement the writer wants for his read readers is the affirmation that comes from what they see, not from the fact that they are being seen. The writer of Hebrews wants his readers to be spurred on by the many and varied examples of God's people who have gone before, who have persevered to the end, and who are now lining the race course all the way around to spur the rest of God's people on by the testimony of their lives. Uh, twist the word picture just a little bit. As you're running your race, you're surrounded by other runners who already finished. And as you say, well, they finished, I, by God's grace, may I finish as well. All right, as we close, four things to consider this week as you think about one holy Catholic church, the communion of saints. Four quick thoughts. One, our way is not the only way. <laughs> Our way is not the only way. The way that we do church is the way that we do church, but it isn't the only way to do church. The marks of the church can be expressed in a variety of ways, and we need to embrace that. We need to remember that we are Western and honestly say that, uh, again, we do the way things the way we see to do them, but that we will always see through our Western eyes. Let me just give one quick example. Uh, Western churches are very, very fixated on facilities. That's just a part of who we are. Uh, it is not that way in much of the world. And the church functions quite well. Uh, I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. It's just real. Other church, we can learn from all other branches of God's church as to what is most significant in the life of the church. Our way is not the only way. Second thing, you, you are bound to the past. Remember that. You are bound to the past. You're part of an eternal kingdom. The men and women of faith remind us of how God has worked and will work again. And so we look into the scriptures and we see the lives of those saints and they inspire us. Whether or not they look at us, I don't know. But we must look at them. We must see the faith of the saints who have gone before us. Our way is not the only way. We are bound to the past. Number three, we are bound to the world. 
we are bound to the world. If one part of the body suffers, we are told it all suffers. And so we must recognize that. You are part of one holy universal church. Are we praying for that one holy universal church? Are we praying for the persecuted church? Are we aware of God's work in places outside of our congregation and outside of our corner of the world? We belong to them. Four, and finally, we are bound to each other. We, the living stones, are all bound to one another. I don't know why we would want to, but you can't escape it. This is the way the church works. We, we are bound together. We will be together for eternity. And if we are connected in this way, this organic way, shouldn't we find ways to express that kind of unity today? I know it's a fallen world and a broken world and our divisions seem so important to us, but should there not be a way in which our unity is visible and visible to the world. We are one holy Catholic Church, a communion of saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your enormous kindness in not merely saving us, but drawing us into the communion of saints. Help us to appreciate this day what it means, not only to belong to you, Lord Jesus, but to belong to one another. Uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.